you don't have to answer out loud, but I, I would be curious at some point in my relationship with all of you to know if any of you have ever been in the very difficult and uncomfortable circumstances where you've had to plead with a fellow Christian to not lose hope and turn back from the faith. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone who you knew and loved and trusted and walked with you in the Christian faith suddenly started drifting from that faith. And you were in their life and it was your time, it was your moment to call them to repentance, to, to call them back. It's a very difficult thing, especially when it doesn't work. I, I, I thankfully haven't experienced it in my own life personally too often, but I, I did have one um, very difficult, heartbreaking moment where um, a friend that I was friends with all throughout high school, who was not a Christian in high school, uh, after we graduated, um, started professing the faith. And he started coming to my church and my parents' church, and we grew very close. And we did Bible studies together. We went to church together. We studied theology together. And uh, he just seemed so on fire and sold out. And it, it was just a beautiful thing. And then I went off to Alamosa, Colorado for school. And I had, we, our relationship somewhat drifted with the distance. And then I found out that he had gotten involved in a lifestyle he shouldn't have. And when the church very peacefully and gently offered him correction, he left. And it wasn't long after that that he drifted out of Christianity altogether. And he is now very, very hostile to the Christian faith. And I remember at one point in time before I moved to Alamosa, when he was still professing his faith and walking with the Lord, he handed me a book called Tortured for Christ. And this book is written by a man who started an organization that you may have heard of known as the Voice of the Martyrs. It's an organization that sort of gives voice and updates to what's happening around the world to our Christian brothers and sisters who don't live in a country like America. And this man went through severe, horrific persecution for his faith, and he wrote a book basically documenting what he, what he went through. And my friend, he gave me this book, he bought it for himself, and he gave it to me as a going away present when I moved. And I remember as I read through it, this was filled with his own highlights. He was highlighting these, these moments of courage. He was highlighting this man who was willing to have his family die, was willing to watch his wife die, was willing to go through any kind of suffering, but he would never reject that name. And it was he who highlighted these things. And so one time after his apostasy was completed, I wrote him a letter and I sent that book back to him. And in that letter, I told him to go through and read those highlights that you highlighted. Read those acts of courage of a man who was unwilling to abandon Christ even in the midst of life's most horrible circumstances and then remember what you left him for. You remember what you were willing to forsake the faith for. And remember the courage you saw in this man. And unfortunately, it didn't work. But I remembered the pain, and I still to this day remember the pain. I think about him, it's hard not to cry. In our point in Galatians, we are going to see in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is going to start getting very personal. We're going to see the, the frustration and the pain and the disappointment of Paul, who is witnessing people he loves so much walk further and further down a road that leads to the corruption of the faith and total apostasy. And this whole letter really is Paul's attempt to call them back, 
to get them to stop their course. And so we begin in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, if you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Well, Paul asked that amazing question, how can you turn back? In light of what you've witnessed, in light of what you've tasted, in light of the glory of the gospel that you have tasted and seen and understood, how could anything else possibly entice you? How could you turn back? Paul is asking them somewhat rhetorically, because in Paul's mind, there is nothing more glorious than the Christian faith. And it just astounds him that after hearing the faith from Paul as it is, that there is possibly something that could come along and catch their eye and attract them more. How could you possibly turn back to these things? And so what Paul sort of does through a, a short list of rhetorical phrases is Paul is really putting his cards on the table, if you will. He's showing his hand, and he's reminding us of why he finds Christianity to be so much better than unbelief. Paul is sort of comparing for us the glories of Christianity to all your other options. What do you get with Christianity, and what do you get outside of Christianity? And then when you actually compare them, when you think about it from Paul's perspective, it shows you the absurdity of chasing after anything else. And so that is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at three things that Paul presents to us as elements that make the gospel that he preached, the religion that he brought to the Galatians, as a far superior religion than what they came out of, what any of these people came out of, Jew and Gentile. In Paul's mind, how does he present non-Christian religion and how does he compare it to Christian religion? We're going to look at three things. We will discuss them and then I will have the point for you at the end. But first, thinking in terms of categories, Paul here begins the text by comparing the living God to false gods. He compares the living and true God of Christianity to dead and false gods of all other thought. He begins in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So he reminds them, before you met me and before you had the true gospel preached to me, you were a slave to an idol. That's who you were. You were enslaved to something, and it, in your life, it, 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 it took the place of God. It was a God in the sense that it was your ultimate authority. It was a God in the sense that your whole life, whether you knew it or not, was focused on serving and pleasing this end. So it was a God to you. But in its objective nature, in what it actually is, it is not God because there's only one of those. So you had a God... You worshipped gods. You were, in fact, you didn't worship them. You were really, you were enslaved to them. You were a servant to these gods. But I want to remind you, they're not God. Paul began the book of Galatians by telling them that the Judaizers are offering you a gospel. 
but it's not really a gospel. He's doing the same thing now. False gospels are always attached to false gods. So he's saying the same thing, not about just their gospel, but about their God. They brought to you a false gospel, and that means they're bringing to you a false God. But there's, no, there's only one gospel, there's only one God. So it's not a true gospel, it's not true gods. Paul reminds them that what you are abandoning right now is the true and living God. And what are you going back to? Idols, not gods. You are turning back to not gods. And that explains this really, I I think it's actually kind of funny, but it's also beautiful, this this little hiccup he has in verse 9. But Paul almost has to correct himself in verse 9. Look at what he says in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, and then he kind of cuts himself off. Or rather, maybe a better way of saying it is to be known by God. How could you possibly turn back again? You see, what Paul is doing there is he is emphasizing the nature of a religion that serves a true and living God rather than an idol. Because the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of serving the true and living God is not so much that you can know him. The beauty of serving the true and living God is that he can know you. You know, you find even in our culture today, people will fall in love with fictitious stories. My family growing up, my whole family, the Brooks, we are unabashedly, unashamed, obsessed with Lord of the Rings. We love Lord of the Rings. I could watch those movies every day, only the extended versions. But what's interesting is I realize through social media that there are people who love Lord of the Rings a lot more than I love Lord of the Rings. And there are people who dress up like those characters. And there are people who will have their favorite character and they can tell you a lot about them. They love Aragorn or they love Legolas. They can tell you their origin stories. They've read all of these documents that Tolkien written that aren't included in the Lord of the Rings. They have all this background knowledge. There are people who can fall in love with these fictitious characters. And they can tell you so much information about these characters. They can tell you everything you want to know about Aragorn plus some. But you know what the problem is? They can know Aragorn, but Aragorn doesn't know them. Aragorn knows nothing about them. Aragorn cares nothing about them. Why? Because he doesn't exist. People can become enslaved to false religions and they can tell you a lot of deep theology about their gods. They can love their gods. They can cherish their gods. They can know their gods really well. But they cannot be known by them. The beauty of Christianity is not so much that you know God, but that He knows you. That He reached down for you. As as, as 1 John tells us, we love Him because He first loved us. Our love is a response to the true and living God who first loved us. There's one story I, I've, I've always cherished of a, of a pastor who talked about, he did some missions work out in, in, in East, in Asia, and in, in the Eastern parts of the world. And he was meeting with a group of religious spirituals who were promoting what you've probably heard many times in your life, this kind of universalism that all roads lead to God. And they use that, that cliche analogy that God is basically sitting at a mountaintop and, and religion is sort of the different paths we all take to get up there. And, and, and Christianity is one path and Buddhism is another path, but we all take this, these paths and we all get to God. 
And he responded, I think, in a really profound and spirit-led way. Where he said, the reason I know that Christianity does not belong in your analogy is because Christianity does not teach of a path leading to God. Christianity is not a path we take up the mountain to get to God. The story of Christianity is the God at the top of the mountain who takes his own path down to us. God came down from the mountain and he came to us. There is none who seeks after God. No, not one. We weren't looking for him. We weren't searching for him. We weren't trying to find the path that led to him. He came to us. Christianity is a God who came for us. A God who knows us. And Paul tells them, that's what you're giving up. For, 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 for this obedience to law, this, this system of, of piety and obedience and slavery, and you, you, would change, you, would, you would take that over the loving relationship of a God who knows us intimately. As Paul says in the book of Romans, that we were foreknown by God. We're not just known, we were foreknown. He loved us before he even made us, and it's the basis of that foreknowledge. He foreknew us, and therefore he chose us. That's what they're surrendering. They are surrendering a beautiful relationship with God for false idols that cannot have relationship with them. And before we get to our, our point, or at least how I've phrased it, I also want us to notice something really important that Paul has done here too. Paul has also, without even probably intentionally doing this, reminded us that everyone you meet is ultimately a religious person. Right? Paul believes in, in, in verse 8 that anyone who comes to the Christian faith, before they got there, they were what? Enslaved to those which are nat by nature not God. Paul doesn't offer for us this category of, okay, so there are people who are slaves to false gods, there are people who are known by the true and living God. And then there's this third group of people who are just kind of out there. They don't, they don't have false gods, but they don't have the true God. They're just kind of swimming in this sea of neutrality. But as we read in Romans chapter 1, everyone knows God exists, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. You see, Paul is under the understanding that you have two options, God or idols. Those, that's it, though. You can be known by God or you can serve idols. And this is why we as Christians rightfully talk about all the time how idols come in many different varieties, shapes, and forms. Not every God has to be the sun God. Not every false God has to necessarily even have a name. But your life will have a pursuit. We are made in the image of God. We are creatures that are called to worship. We will worship. Chimps don't worship. Tigers don't worship. As human beings have expanded into the world, as, as we have expanded and covered the face of the earth, we have found many different species of animals and none of them are worshiping. But you know what happens when we find people groups there? They're always religious. People were made to worship. We are worshipers by nature. The question is not, will we worship a God? The question is, which God will we worship? But those are our two options. Jesus himself says, anyone who is not for me is against me. They're not just neutrally hanging out waiting for Jesus to make himself known. You're either for him or you are actively 
against him. And, and one of the reasons why I come to this conclusion, by the way, is I, I, I mentioned this a little bit last week, where I, admittedly, I do read this text slightly different than most of the modern commentators that I read. And here's why, because if, if you were to pick up a handful of commentaries and read through them, most of them would make the argument that, that Galatians 4, 1 through 7 is really only to the Jews, and then Galatians 8 through 11, Galatians 4, verse 8 through 11 is to the Gentiles. And I understand where that's coming from. The reason we want to say that is because the language Paul uses in this text, we just can't wrap our minds around Paul, a former Pharisee, a Jew himself, describing Judaism with the same language that in the rest of the New Testament we only ever see it applied to pagan Gentiles. You show me one former Pharisee that would be willing to say that Judaism is equivalent to being enslaved to pagan gods, plural. But that's what Paul says in verse 8. When you did not know God, so what happened before they came to saving faith, when they were Jews who denied Christ? They were enslaved to false idols. That phrase is almost only exclusively used of the pagan religions. And so people say there's no way Paul is using it here to describe the Jewish religion. He must be only talking about the Gentiles here. And that would open us up. Well, maybe, maybe there are people who are, you know, neutral. Like Paul's just talking about these particular Gentiles who were polytheistic pagans before they came to know God. But here's why I don't think we can do that. Number one, the, the whole chapter is filled with what we call these, these plural pronouns. Us, we, you. So, in other words, when Paul says in verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, the question is, is who's the you there? And most of these commentators want us to say that the you is only the Gentile Galatians. But I would argue, we're not going to do it here, but I would challenge you to read from chapter 3, verse 23, when he first starts using the plural pronouns, and work down to verse 8, and you show me when the plural pronouns switch from only Jews to only Gentiles. He just uses us, we, you all throughout. And I don't see where we can go through saying, well, that we is just the Jews, and then that you is everyone, but that you is the Gentiles. I just don't see us slicing it up like that. I think the same group is in focus. The entire Galatian church, which the primary controversy right now, by the way, is not the pagan Gentiles wanting to go back to paganism. What was the whole controversy of the book? It was Jewish men who came from Jerusalem who convinced the Jews to pressure the Gentiles to fall into Judaism. Notice, notice how the language he uses in verse... If, imagine how could he use this language if, only, if we're only talking about the Gentiles right now. Not only do I think we've just exited the whole context of the book, which is not about the Gentiles going back to paganism. It's about the Jews going back to Judaism. But look at what he says in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Here's the problem. The, the Gentiles in Galatia, what are they being pressured to turn to? What's the false religion they're being pressured to turn to? Not paganism. Judaism. But Paul doesn't describe this. But, but what does Paul say? He says, how can you turn back again? So Paul is not talking about uh, Galatians, Gentiles, going back to paganism. 
because the controversy is about Judaism. He is describing Jews who became Christians who are going back again to enslavement to the law. And that would include some of their Gentile compatriots as well. And so here's why I said this last week, I want to emphasize. I think Paul's primary audience right now is still the Jews because they're the ones turning back again. They're the ones going to something old. If the, if the Gentiles in Galatia become Jews, they're not turning back to their old way of life. They've just adopted something even newer than their Christianity. The primary focus is on people who would go back to their former way of life. And by the way, I think that explains verse 10. Verse 10, he just sort of expresses this, this, you know, he's just dumbfounded with all of the different legalism that they've adopted. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Referencing the Jewish calendar, the sabbatical year, the new moons, the festivals. That You see, the, the Judaizers have not just imposed circumcision on these people. They've imposed the entire religious mosaic law. These people are, they just, in other words, what Paul's saying, you look just like the Jews. No one would be able to look at you and, and figure out that you're not Jews, you're Christians. You've just gone back and you're just doing everything the way we used to do before Christ came, as if Christ made no difference. They have turned back again to the old system where they think that the law is what saves them. They have turned back. He's still primarily talking about the Jews, but nonetheless, he does speak in broad language that would encompass everyone. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, you can all relate to this. I was enslaved to false gods and I don't want to go back there. And so that's why I think we can accurately say that this... Paul's section here is something that has equal applicability to us. In other words, you don't have to be a former Jew. You can, you can be a Gentile who's never been a Jew, but I would still tell you if you tried to walk away from Christianity that you are going to be enslaved to false gods. That you are going to be enslaved, as verse 9 says, to the elementary principles of the world. This is language that accompanies all apostasy, Jew or Gentile. And that's why Paul would use these pagan terms for the Jews. Because he wants us to see that all apostasy is pagan. All false religion is ultimately equal. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the word atheism in the Bible. Did you know that? Paul addresses atheists. It's found in the book of Ephesians when he describes the polytheistic pagans. So Paul looked at people who believed in not just one God, but many gods. What did he call them? Atheists. You are without God in the world. See, in Paul's mind, atheism is not a lack of belief in God, because he said in Romans 1, everyone knows God exists. In Paul's mind, atheism is to merely be without God. There are two religions in the world. There's Christianity and atheism. You're either with God or against him. You either have God or you have no God. And so what Paul is doing here is he's comparing Christianity to atheism, not as we think of it. But as Paul knows it to be, Christianity with anything else. And wrapping this all back to our first point, here's one of the ways that makes Christianity superior. Because it's true and the others are false, with Christianity, you get to serve a true and living God. That's Paul's option. You can serve an idol or you can serve the true and living God. Those are your two options in Paul's mind. You can be enslaved to idols, or you can be known by the true and living God. 
But that brings up this next category of, we talked a little bit about it last week, not a little bit, a lot about it last week, this concept of slavery versus relationship. Not only is Christianity superior to Judaism and to all other forms of unbelief, because the God of Christianity is true and the others are false, but Paul here again brings up this concept of enslavement versus relationship. Right? What does he say in verse 8? Formerly when you did not know God, that's a word of intimacy. Uh, the, the Bible says that when Adam knew Eve, they had birthed their first son. This is an intimate relational word. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. So he pits knowledge with slavery. And then he says, but now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, sometimes the Bible does use the analogy of slavery in a positive way. Paul does refer to himself as a slave of Christ. The book of Romans talks about how we can be slaves to sin or slaves to God. So slavery is not an analogy that can never be used positively. You have to read it in its context. And in the context of the book of Galatians, slavery is clearly being used in a negative sense. Specifically, slavery is being used to describe religious traditions where law-keeping is how you get into heaven. That's how Paul, in this book, defines slavery. That if you want to make getting into heaven based on your performance... Even if, even if your performance isn't the only thing that's brought into the picture. It's not like the Jews taught people you don't have to love or know God. The Jews believed you had to have faith in Yahweh. You had to believe in Yahweh, but your faith wasn't enough. Faith alone wasn't enough. You have to obey the law. So any religion that says, yeah, you need to have faith in God. You need to believe in God, but that's not enough. Paul says that's slavery. Because you are bound to a gospel. You're bound to a system you can never break free of. There is nothing in that system that offers you freedom, only condemnation. There's no intimate relationship with a loving Father God. You are merely a servant who will at the end of history be paid for your dues. And Paul has in his mind that all false gospels will ultimately lead to legalism. Outside of Christianity, outside of Christ, outside of the Christian religion that he taught, wherever you go, you're eventually going to find yourself in a system that has law-keeping as your salvation. And I would argue this is patently obvious in today's world. This is patently obvious in today's world. Go through a, a list of, of the traditions of the world and compare them to Christianity on this issue. Soteriology, justification, how am I made right with God? And you find how many will tell you faith isn't enough. Faith alone is not a doctrine of Mormonism. Faith alone is not a doctrine of Roman Catholicism. Faith alone is not a doctrine of Islam. You go to, faith alone is not a doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I would argue even in the Eastern religions that have a very different concept of salvation altogether, whether it's reincarnation, that's kind of their salvation. How are you reincarnated into something good based on the life you've lived? Works. Nirvana. How do you achieve nirvana in Buddhism? Works. You go to any other world religion and what they offer you is faith is not enough. You've got to earn it. Paul alone is standing in front of the Galatians and saying, all I have to give you is mercy. 
All my gospel offers you is forgiveness and mercy and compassion, and you want to trade that for a system that says, you got to earn it. It's on your shoulders now. Paul says, how could you turn back to that? Why would you, let's not even talk about what's true right now. Why would you want that? I like to tell people sometimes, especially when I'm talking to people who in different religions, even if, even if the gospel that I preach is not true, I know it is, but even if it's not, don't you wish it was? Don't you wish it was? That God can save you apart from your works? Isn't that just better? Rather than, okay, God's done his part, now it's up to you. Paul calls that slavery. And Paul told the Galatians, that's what you're giving up Christianity for, and that's Paul's message for everyone today. If you're tempted to leave Christianity, I don't care where you go, you're going to find works. That's all you're going to find. And by the way, legalism is by definition a graceless religion. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, speaking of salvation, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. By definition, a gospel of works is a graceless gospel. You've got two options, grace or slavery. Grace or slavery. And Paul says, how could you possibly choose slavery over grace? How could you possibly choose slavery over grace? So point number two, how is Christianity superior to atheism, to non-Christianity, is that Christianity is being known and loved by God. It's not slavery in the negative sense. It's relationship. It's to be known by God. It's not to be enslaved to something. It's to be adopted into a family. It is a religion of grace. It is a gospel of grace. It is a relationship with God. It is not merely do this and he'll give you that. It's a relationship. That leads us to our third point that Paul brings up. He talked about slavery. He talks about being known by God. He talks about all of these things, but he also has this category of power versus weakness. Look at what he says in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to what? The weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Last week in our text, he used that same phrase. He described false Jewish religion as, as, as being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And now here he adds in these adjectives. They're not just the elementary principles of the world. They are the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. I love if you have an older translation like a King James or a New King James, they will often use the word beggarly. The weak and beggarly elements of the world. I just love that word. What's Paul saying? What is Paul saying? Well, he is saying that these gospels that you're turning to, these false religions, which he said last week we've already established are the religions of men, not the religions of God. That's why they are the principles of worldly religions, not the principles of divine religions. They are the principles of the world, the elements of the world. These religions that you turn to, they lack power. They are weak. They have no strength. And they're worthless. They have nothing to give you. There's no power in that religion. The religion that says, do this, obey this, be good enough, and God might reward you with heaven, is not a religion that can save you. It's not a religion that can change you. 
What we see in the gospel, what we have been studying throughout the book of Galatians is how did we receive the Spirit, Galatians chapter 3, by faith. Paul's gospel gives you the Holy Spirit who comes into you. Jesus describes him as being power from on high. We have a power within us that can change us. And on top of that, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. That word power there in the Greek, by the way, is where we get our English word dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite that blows through sin and unbelieving thought and saves us. Paul says the religions you turn to are weak. They can't change you. They can't save you. They can offer you some kind of moral accountability. But I think what we've experienced throughout human history is merely telling people you need to be good. Pull yourself up by your, up by your bootstraps and be a better person. It doesn't work like that. We need a power from on high. We need a good and glorious gospel that motivates us to works. We need a Holy Spirit who can change us and transform us, change our desires and our passions, give us a new heart. The true gospel, the Christian gospel that Paul preached to them, it is a powerful gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is being clothed with the power from on high. False religions of legalism and slavery are weak and worthless. They will do nothing for you but condemn you. And so in conclusion, so I would put that point this way. Why is Christianity better than non-Christianity? Because Christ has a saving gospel. Christianity can save you. It's a powerful religion that can save you and transform you. It is the power of God unto salvation. Christ has a saving gospel. So as we've seen, Christianity is serving the true God over false gods. Christianity is a relationship with God over enslavement. And Christianity has a powerful gospel rather than a weak gospel. And in light of all of that, the Galatians are still turning to these weak beggarly, false things. They haven't gone yet, but they're on that road. And that's why Paul concludes verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's painful. That's painful in both directions. That, I'm sure that that didn't sound good on their ears when they heard this letter for the first time. But I would argue that's painful for, painful for Paul. We're going to talk more about this next week as Paul uh, goes along with this metaphor of labor. But Paul's understanding of missionary work, Paul's understanding of church planning, was not this glorified, traveling, itinerant preacher. Paul loved these people. And he lived with these people. He shared his life with these people. He trained them. He taught them. He labored over them. And then he leaves, and he hears word that these new teachers have come in, and they all think you're wrong. These new teachers have come in, and now they're practicing a new religion. So what does Paul tell them? Verse 11, this is basically a nice way of saying, I wasted my time with you. Paul said, that's my fear. I'm afraid that all my labors and all my preaching and everything I did you was nothing but a waste of my time. I labored over you in vain. There was, there's no fruit to my labor. I could have been off in other parts of the Gentile world 
preaching the gospel and planting churches to people who would have stuck with me. But instead, I poured out all this energy and all this effort into people who would so quickly abandon me and abandon my gospel. I wasted my time. That's his fear. He's not saying he has done it, but that's his fear. If they turn away, I've wasted my time. And so there's two things I want us to conclude with. The first one is a, a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's really important. Notice the, the harsh language of verse 11. I've, I've wasted my time. If these people truly turn back, then Paul believes his labors had no fruit. There was no reward to his efforts. And so what does that tell us? That means that if they turn back, what Paul thought had done was undone, and they are not saved. In other words, if Paul's understanding of salvation was that you can get saved, and then you can walk away from the faith, but because you were once saved, you're just going to be saved even though you're an unbeliever, then he couldn't say verse 11. He would say something like, thankfully, since you were at least at one point in time saved, you have to remain saved. So even though you've abandoned Christ and you've gone to a false gospel and you hate me and you hate the true gospel, you're still going to go to heaven one day. No, in Paul's mind, if someone walks away, we have no right to consider that person a Christian. If someone rejects the Christian faith, we have no right to consider that person a Christian. And here's why that's so important. Uh, admittedly and thankfully, this is a minority movement. It's not popular today the way it was once popular in America, but it still is around, and so I want to caution us against it. In the Reformed tradition, we believe in a doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. And this is the idea that the Holy Spirit perseveres your faith. And the reason Reformed theologians have always been careful, because we debate, obviously, with other Christians whether a person can lose their justification or not, Reformed theologians have always been careful to articulate their doctrine in a particular way. Reformed theologians have been much more careful than merely saying you can't lose your salvation. That's really not how Reformed people like to articulate it. They, they, they've been more specific when we've debated others who disagree with us in saying that you cannot lose your faith by the perseverance of the Holy Spirit. And here's why that's important. Because it is a recognition that if someone does lose their faith, their justification is gone too. So really, the true question in this debate, you know, in the Christian church we debate, can a person lose their salvation or not? The true question, Reformed theologians would say apostasy, when people fall away, these were people who were merely part of the visible church, but never part of the invisible church. These are people who were never truly saved, they merely professed it. And then there are Christians who say, no, they were truly saved, they were truly justified, and they lost that. And that's what we should be debating. But what we cannot debate, which Christians today believe, is this issue that you can lose your faith but keep your justification. Paul could not write verse 11 if that was his mentality. You hate Jesus, but you punched your ticket a while ago, so whew, you're in the clear. This is why, by the way, we practice stuff like church discipline. Because even though everyone in this room is professing Christ, I don't know your hearts, and you don't know my heart. And so if you start to live in such a way that denies Christ, or if you just blatantly deny Christ, then our point is that you have no business being members here. In other words, when we bring people together, we are affirming, to the best of my fallible knowledge, we think you're a Christian. 
point here that I'm trying to make, hopefully it's been clear, is that Paul understands that if these people die believing in this gospel, they are not saved. We can debate all day long, well, what happened? Were they justified and they lost it, or were they never truly justified? We can have that debate. But the clear thing we need to understand is that outside of faith in Christ, there is no salvation. Paul believes these people are on a road to hell. Because a false gospel can't save you. Because a false God can't save you. And so that leads us to how I want to really conclude, which is this. Endurance is hard. You don't have to have a Judaizing false teacher come into the church and, and teach you a false doctrine. Although that happens all throughout the country. Lots of people leave the Christian faith because they were deceived by false teachers. That happens. But that's not the only way people abandon the faith. Sometimes we abandon the faith just because we're simply mad at our lot in life. Because sometimes things happen in my life, God allows and does things to me that I don't like. Or sometimes it's just like an apologetic say, I just can't understand how this is true. The world is filled with false teachings, confusions, and bitterness. And all of these things tempt us to walk away from the faith. And so what Paul is trying to remind us of is this simple principle. I know this was a three-part sermon, but I want to end with this. Here's Paul's overall point. Christ is better. Whatever it is you're tempted to turn from Christ to, I promise you, Jesus is better. And this is the perspective we lose when the going gets tough. When we lose family members, I hate God. So what do you turn to? Does it bring your family back? What, what philosophical system actually brings you the comfort you desire when horrible things happen? This world accidentally got here, there's no purpose, there's no help, there's no hope, and we're all going to die one day. That makes you feel better about your lost child? That makes you feel better about your cancer diagnosis? We are so tempted by the enemy on so many fronts to walk away from this Christianity, which is so difficult and so hard sometimes. And Paul is trying to say, how could you turn back? What have you turned to? Is it really better? Whatever it is you've gone back to, whatever it is you've found, show me how it's better than Christ. Paul wants us to understand that Jesus is better even when obeying God is hard. And even when things happen to me that I don't understand. And even when I don't have this entire Bible figured out, Christ is better. Turn with me. We'll conclude with John chapter 6. I want you to see this perspective in action. Not from the man who wrote it, but from Peter. Peter's response to a difficult and troubling time. Peter's response to a temptation to abandon Christ. This is how Peter responded. My hope and my prayer is that it would be all of our, our responses. John chapter 6, look with me at verse 66.
Jesus just got done preaching and teaching and the crowd doesn't like it. Jesus' message is hard on their ears. They don't understand and they don't want it. So verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So when Satan tempts you with this question, do you want to turn back now? You ready to give up? You ready to walk away? What's your response? Where would I go? To whom shall I go? Who's better than Christ? May you always remember that Christ is better. I